0: Hello, and welcome to PodRocket, the podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. You can try it free at LogRocket.com. I'm Noel, and joining us today is Ben Callahan, founder of Sparkbox. Ben, can you give us an overview on
1: who you are and what Sparkbox is? I am an old computer science guy. I studied computer science growing up and then um, started a couple little businesses doing websites for the local companies and that kind of thing. Moved into doing some audio and video work. I made some short movies for a while and had a little recording studio doing music stuff and eventually kind of found my love of user experience, building front end experiences using most of the time kind of web technologies. And that's sort of what My business partner and I built Sparkbox to be, which is an organization that helps other companies or client services or studio. We help them with their digital experiences, digital products. And we're coming up on 15 years now. And it's just been a really fun opportunity. You know, I feel really lucky to have met so many incredible clients that we've worked with, employees that we've had on our team for a season. I've learned a ton and continue to each day.
0: I feel like design systems are in the zeitgeist right now, or at least they have been for maybe the past few years. Were you involved or thinking about this before that wave, or did you hop on as it was ramping up? How did that timeline look?
1: I think most folks who are drawn to design systems, as we call them today, are people who just think systematically. And so almost everybody that I know who's doing this work at scale now, when you ask them about their history, will tell you they were doing this kind of work for a decade before we ever put design and system together in a title of some kind. So I definitely feel that. I look back at the work we were doing 15 years ago. We were trying to think very systematically because we knew our customers had more problems to solve than just the ones they had paid us to help with. Mm. And so what we wanted was to build something for them they could use in lots of contexts to solve lots of problems.
0: A lot of our listeners are probably, you know, they're more developers. They understand the need to organize things. Like if they're using a front-end framework, they're like, yeah, I want things as componentized as possible and make that all clean. What more than that is a design system beyond just like I want to use components everywhere I can in React View, Svelte, whatever. What is a design system beyond just trying to componentize your
1: front end. This is a very astute observation. (laughs) And what a lot of times when I talk to designers about this, they have only recently been given the tooling to be able to actually think systematically about the interfaces they're designing. Developers on the other hand, that's how our tools are constructed. Even if you just look at something as simple as CSS, the idea of a class name And me being able to assign a set of styles that move around with the class name. And now I can apply that set of styles to different elements in my DOM. That's such a systematic way of thinking. So the same thing is true with any other form of development. We break things down, just like you said. So that is an important part of design systems because it's sort of the implementation of them in reality has to be a set of components that I can implement. But I think. One sort of concept I've been trying in my coaching and consulting work with design system leads, one of the things I've been trying to help folks understand is that design systems have to exist at sort of a level above that. It's a conceptual thing. if we take just the classic example of a component, so let's just use a button because that's what everybody uses. (laughs) I have a button component, right? That button component in whatever tool in React or whatever you're using is one instance of a concept. Right, So it's at the level that a dev needs to kind of put it on a page somewhere or in an experience somewhere, but that button needs to exist as an asset in lots of different tooling. You know, I have designers who might need that same thing in Figma. I have UX folks who might need that same thing in something like Axure or a prototyping tool of some kind. I have QA folks who might need to see that in a context where they can do a comparison of some kind to validate So every discipline has a different set of needs for this concept of a button. Now, as a dev, I'm so focused on writing code or building something that that's in my mind that I have this discipline bias about what a system is. And it focuses me down on just the thing that I use each day. Of course, that's important. I've been pushing design system leads to think more abstractly about systems because the tools will change, as you know, right? We're using React right now, but we might be using something else tomorrow. And so what we have to know is what are the core concepts of that button? And this, it gets a little extreme when we're talking about something so simple, but this is where you can nest components to create a lot more complexity. That only works if there are foundational concepts that exist that go all the way back, I believe, to the brand of the organization. And in this way, we're able to create alignment that's much more impactful than just all of the buttons look the same in the product. If that button has, again, it's cheesy talking about a button, but if the foundational elements of that button are rooted in the brand of the organization, now the interaction that one of our end customers has with that interface that's built with that same foundational brand concept can align with the way that we answer a customer support email and the way that our ad in whatever podcast that we put out there sounds and all of that sort of touch point of brand interaction, we can create consistency. And that gives us as designers and developers and product folks, the ability to participate in like a very holistic approach to connecting with our customers. And that's how we create really impactful brands. So that's why I love this kind of work. If I can play the devil's advocate for a minute here,
0: like the dev comes in and anyone that's doing like the final implementation of the button in the mobile app or the page or whatever. I think it's easy for them to have the worldview that like, well, I'm the one that's actually doing it or our react code base is the thing that's actually rendering it. Everything else is just going to always be a poor abstraction. The designers need to work on the team that's doing this design. Like. We've got to make the code that the machine ends up displaying on the page. So like there's always going to be like this is the truth and everything else is like we're going to lose fidelity as we go up the stack. Mm -hmm. How do you build empathy there? You know, you can kind of shift how an engineer is looking at this problem to make it more of a holistic approach to
1: kind of design and the voice of a system. The concept, even just the way that you phrase that, how do you build empathy there? I think that is the core of it. And the way, at least in my experience, the way that we try to help encourage that sort of growth of empathy is by putting these folks in situations where they're engaged in constructing the very specific thing they know they'll need to use from what is the conceptual sort of foundational brand-based, you know, whatever elements are foundational to it and letting them observe and participate in the decision-making there. I was just talking with somebody about this, how this is a design system lead for an organization. They're about a year in on their system, and they had made some promises to their leadership about how they needed a team to build a first iteration of a design system. But over time, their hope was that team size could reduce and they could start to use more of a community-driven model. Mm -hmm. The system could be maintained by its subscribers. That's a very idealistic view of the process and I tried to kind of share that with them but in that conversation one of the things that we talked about was this concept of contribution which design systems folks talk about a lot which means just that the system's never going to be perfect as folks who are using it perhaps a dev discovers a thing that it could do better, they build that for their specific use case and then help abstract it into something that other product engineers or whatever could use. So contributing back into the system in some way. It's the product of the design system evolves in a much more slow manner if we rely on that, right? because we're it's sort of a forced collaboration between different disciplines and the design system team. And the fastest way to do that is for the dev in that situation to just build the thing they need to build, let the design system team know. The design system team has the expertise to understand the necessary refactoring to make it systematic. So they take that work, they do it themselves, integrate it into the system. It's now available to others. That's the fastest way to do it, but that's not an empathy building exercise. And so I think of contribution more as the way that we help develop empathy for each other So it's really like exposure. It's like engagement. It's participating in that. And I'm not necessarily saying that in order to build a successful design system, you don't necessarily have to build that empathy. It's really hard for me to say that as somebody who culturally lives in this sort of very collaborative space. I want that. That's my personal desire. But I also worked with some organizations that culturally that's just not in the cards for them at the moment. And so I'm interested in understanding how that culture of the organization impacts the way that we approach this stuff, because there are ways to have successful systems that don't require that for you to be able to operate at great scale, very efficiently without that. Now, that comes with other negatives. So it's always about pros and cons and how do we weigh those out?
0: Let's jump into that a little bit. What is a good
1: starting point
0: for people coming in these organizations that they're trying to build this, but they don't know exactly how to like do that mapping or make this flow work? What are like the high level kind of here's a good framework
1: to get started with, given your organization's attributes? I would say that the only starting point that I know of that works is to come to that problem with a recognition that your personal preference for how to get things done Is not the only way to get things done so that kind of openness is you kind of have to have that as a foundational understanding before you tackle the cultural side of all of this and once you've personally done the work to figure that out or agreed that's okay that's a world we can live in then it's a matter of understanding where everybody else is coming from and i did the story i've been telling about this is that we did an engagement with an organization for about a year. We were helping them build a design system while we were also helping them build a product. And they, they had lots of ideas for new products. They wanted a system so that they could iterate on those quickly and work more efficiently. And so we thought that's the kind of work we love to do. So we came in, we were working in those two kind of parallel paths. One is a new sort of MVP of a product idea, and that was being built with a system we were also building in parallel. Hmm. And at the end of that engagement, we made great progress over the course of a year, but culturally we were really struggling in that engagement. And I'm not proud of this, but we could not figure out how to work well with them. And so we walked away from that client and it was, it was a very large engagement. Financially, it was a very difficult decision to make as an owner of a business, but it just felt like we had tried so hard to come at that sort of challenge from different directions and we couldn't figure it out. And that happened like right at the end of the year. And we went into a holiday break for a couple weeks there just towards the end of the year and into the new year. And I was so frustrated. I like kind of was like dwelling on this problem. It, it pushed me for the next year into this research area around understanding organizational culture. And I did a bunch of reading on like ways that people have considered cultures and things inside companies. There's a lot of this stuff that's been out there for decades. And so I didn't feel the need to recreate something here. So I found one concept that I've really kind of latched onto, which is called the competing values framework. And so this is decades old, uh, but basically it gives you kind of these four quadrants. It's called competing values because it maps two sets of competing values on an X and a Y axis. No organization lives wholly in one of these quadrants. Everybody has a little bit of each, but it helps you to kind of see, oh, there are lots of different ways to operate. And there are definitely trends. Startups tend to be in this more ad hocracy creative space, banks and finance and hospitals and like anything where there's like risk, they tend to be more controlling with more hierarchy. So you can start to see how this works. But that's given me a nice Model to work with, and I've written a bit about that. I'm happy to speak in more detail of, around that. I am curious. I'm thinking
0: a lot of tech companies, startups, and stuff. They're in this highly collaborative space where everything is organic, and there's a lot of those decisions that a big company has made, regardless of their industry, as the organization grows and just things become more regimented. It is like priorities are shifted and compartmentalized. I think that does tend to happen. But tech teams in general, regardless of where they are, at least in my anecdotal experience, have always felt more of that kind of want to collaborate and make their work process better like throughout the organization than other pieces i've seen is it easier to sell this kind of hey we need to make this a more holistic approach to how we design our experience is it easier to sell that to like newer age technical teams than it is i don't know like the rest of the business i guess is it easier to sell down to the implementers than up to the owners in these organizations a lot of the time I think it
1: totally depends on the perspective of the individuals involved. And for that reason, a lot of our work in this space is it's not technical at all. It's storytelling is really what it is. And the processes we go through here are let's understand, especially if we're trying to sell up to leadership, let's understand who these individuals are. I want to know their history, what's their career journey, trajectory. I need to understand what's important to them as an individual so that I can show them a view of the system's work that we're advocating for that aligns with the things they want. And that's storytelling, that's sales, right. is what really what it is. And so that's kind of the approach we take. I don't know that it's necessarily easier or harder because the truth is, if you objectively look at the benefits that a design system offers, a healthy system offers, it's almost impossible to not see how beneficial it could be. So no matter what you want, it can shapeshift a bit to serve those needs.
0: I think the sell is in like getting people to
1: accept that the
0: operational overhead is worth it.
1: That's the thing you're trying to make work. And not just that, like the sort of organizational shift that's needed. It's a culture thing. It requires folks to really come together to do a thing it puts teams different disciplines inside of an organization on the same team and there's definitely the more modern organizations that you were describing maybe perhaps where you've had a chance to work they have that in their dna they want that but a lot of times they're pushed to be fast so hard that collaboration slows you down what happens when you're being pressed for efficiency is you close your doors and you all put your headphones on and you get your work done And that's not a collaborative approach to the work necessarily. So it sort of unintentionally pushes you out of collaboration when you're so focused on speed and you have to be in in a really competitive market. So that's hard. Mm -hmm.
0: Viewing this from a developer's lens, and this, this feels a lot like when a code base is rapidly developing and you have like lots of contributors making pull requests, sending code up at the same time, it's like the scrutiny that is being given to each line of code and every technical decision that's being made throughout. And like you said, it's easier to... Just kind of everyone's operating as a little independent agent, like building a feature, just shipping it. And then there's the very little um, thought going into the impact on the system as a whole. But then, yeah, like I think that has always felt like a very cultural thing to me, like even that manifestation of maybe it's the same Like Maybe this is the same kind of rut. It's like people that care about the long term health of this kind of code system, if you'll forgive that versus like the design system.
1: That's great. Yeah
0: if i can continue that analogy i think that i've done quite a bit of reading and and thinking about in large code bases how like say dependency is changing right i think there's still kind of the a, de- a decision hasn't been made on like who is in charge of updating downstream dependencies, people that are subscribing to the code, like the API that someone has defined as an engineer. And that feels a lot like this kind of collaborative process that you were describing before of like the subscribers to a system versus the people, like the organizational decision makers that are managing it. Have you found in the wild that those two typically correlate? If a technical organization is one where the subscribers are managing the centralized APIs that a lot of people are depending on, they are in charge of those updates. Does that tend to manifest as a subscribers also owning more of that kind of design system or are these separate concerns?
1: I don't have the data to answer that objectively, but my hunch is probably that you're right. One of the things we do is we have a little culture survey we can run internally with an organization Because the culture stuff applies not just to the org as a whole, but to any place where a couple folks are getting together consistently, like there's going to be a subculture that forms. And so what you're describing here is that the engineering side of the technical side of an organization often does have its own subculture. I have some work I've done to show like the spectrum of culture and specifically from a more collaborative approach to a more controlling or hierarchical approach. And a lot of times the healthiest place to be is towards the center of that and it's only the extreme ends where we start to get like a lot of unhealth and that's kind of you know so organizations that are really collaborative if they're too far on that spectrum they actually don't get much done because yeah. <laughs> they have to get consensus and that takes a long time and on the other end it's like if we're fully independent well then we're not we're developing you know we're, we're working on an island without The input of others which is actually not a healthy process either right so it's finding a way to balance those things and the nuance is in how far off center can i go towards what a culture wants without reaching those stages of extreme sort of unhealth
0: if one's sitting in an organization and they're maybe they don't have a lot of external resources but they're trying to advocate for like getting more of a design system established are there signals they can look out for that may indicate that they're trying to do something too collaboratively or they're trying to do it too centralized, like too controlling that might signal to them that like they may need to evaluate where they try to steer the organization to get more buy-in like
1: from these uh, stakeholders? Yeah. I think it's really hard to see that in the midst of it. If I give a presentation on this sort of cultural, the cultural side of this stuff. I have people come up and they always have one of two things to say to me. One of them is you showed me why I don't fit into the company that I work at. Like personally, I align here. My organization is here and those are opposites. And that's why I'm so unhappy in my job. (laughs) And so it's a very personal thing. And then the other one is more about them understanding their past failures. They'll say, oh, now I understand why there was so much resistance to this approach that I tried to put into practice. So I'm working now, like one of the things I really want out of this is to find ways to help this understanding prevent future failures as much as it helps us understand past ones. I wish I had better answer for you there, but I'm looking for that kind of, what are those signals? The best that I have so far is there is this little cultural survey. In fact, you can buy this book by the original authors. It's called Diagnosing and Changing Organizational Culture Based on the Competing Values Framework. And it's very in-depth, you know, it's a lot of in the weeds stuff, but there are some ways in there to help identify culturally where your org fits. And that can give you some really good insight on how to approach things.
0: We'll get a link to that in the show
1: notes so people can find it. I I think like
0: having these kinds of mental mappings, a framework like this or a spectrum to think about things on is I think devs would acknowledge that it's pretty useful to help give just a vocabulary and assign a good, healthy mental model to like how one can think about these problems. I think that there is a tendency for like detail oriented technical people to feel like these are all just like I said before, like kind of abstractions They don't really help us get things done. Like we can talk about where our organization fits in the spectrum and all this, but like at the end of the day, like they're the one that has to implement how the button looks when clicked on and all this stuff. How do you reconcile that? Like, this is a mental abstraction that we're making to help us discuss this. But at some point we've got to make decisions about who owns XYZ piece of the system versus who owns this component. Where do you draw that line? And how do you f- ensure that People aren't feeling this is just hand wavy are making decisions based on
1: arbitrary lines. I've definitely experienced that. I think there's a few things that come to mind. One, like when you're sitting at your computer writing your code for the button, we'll just continue the analogy here. You actually do have a lot of personal freedom in how you choose to do that kind of thing, right? There, there is still autonomy that exists. And I'm not suggesting that we want to remove that from designers, developers, from any individuals. I think I'm just sort of saying there's a there's a maturity that comes with understanding that we're all operating inside of the constraints of what the culture permits. And so when you are headphones on, head down writing code, you do operate in your own space. But what I'm advocating for is a recognition that when you're in conversation with other people is where a lot of these things really apply. So Hmm. how do we interact with each other? What are the expectations around that? Honestly, if I were to look across an org and try to like map out where there is efficiency and inefficiency, I actually think the biggest amount of inefficiency comes just from the fact that we don't understand each other. It's like this very root thing where you say one thing, I interpret it through my own experience and lens. And I actually interpret it differently than what you mean, but we both nod our heads because we think we know we disappear, we do our work and we come back and we've actually missed each other. Hmm. And that creates so much inefficiency inside of an organization, not just inefficiency, it creates a lot of frustration. So what I'm hoping for is to like ask that individuals who have that sort of very tangible, necessary, practical view that you're describing also step back every once in a while and recognize they're operating inside of a much larger thing. And they got to be a part of that too. I think I have a pretty good grasp on how that would look like
0: in a highly collaborative environment, how taking ownership of this, whatever component you've created and bubbling that up,
1: how does that manifest in a more controlled hierarchical environment? Most often it's more procedural. It's less about us doing a thing together, finding consensus on how it should be done. And it's mm. allowing the individuals who have the proper expertise to do the thing they're good at. And so it's, it does end up feeling more segmented that specifically a design systems team would say, here's the set of steps. Here's the diagram that maps out the process we're going to do this part, you're going to do this part, we'll review it, you'll review it. And it's very linear in that way. And the only sort of collaboration that exists in there is the sort of series of checks and balances that are necessary to make sure the work is right. So that's a much different approach than, hey, let's sit down together and actually work on this problem together. It's more of a kind of a structured handoff. Those are two extreme examples, and there's plenty of space in the middle.
0: I think that you articulating this is helping me understand why you're advocating for like the design system being most efficient when it's in the middle somewhere, because I've seen both of those extremes where it's like just the amount of control over every decision that's being made adds so much bureaucratic overhead as well. It's just like, okay, who do I even ask? I've got some little implementation detail that wasn't ironed out and I've got to go talk to three different teams to figure out who actually owns this versus like, I have no idea what to do or I'm trying to build consensus with this giant team and see kind of what feels the best.
1: Yeah, that's the documentation side of design systems, like having a spot where we actually state who owns what. (laughs) That's not collaborative or controlling. That's just smart. You know, (laughs) I mean, that's just like, let's just be real about people need to know that kind of thing. They need to know who do I talk to about a thing? So I don't necessarily think that one or the other means there is stronger understanding of ownership, that can still exist in all of these quadrants. What have you
0: found works really well to help with this, like from an informational perspective, to just kind of make these, the handoffs, the like interfaces between these teams,
1: like what works well, what have you seen in the wild? The tooling in the design system space is a weird mishmash right now. It's early enough that there isn't like in my mind, one clear tool that all the design system teams should be using. There's plenty of organizations trying to do that. But the problem is every org that we've interacted with has a bizarre combination of needs. I've heard other folks say that design systems are like a reflection of the org. The way that they're built, the tooling that's needed to manage them is all so dependent on the tooling that's used in the products themselves. And so this actually comes even back beyond tooling back to the structure of a design system team. A lot of times the way that I help organizations make those tooling decisions and who should be on the systems team, all of those kinds of decisions is to look across the org and see what are the things that are in play here. If your product team squads or however you're structured have half of a UX designer, a UI designer and four devs, then. That might be a really good set of disciplines for us to think about for the design system team, but not every organization is structured that way. This is a challenge. There's lots of content out there about, once you've made a decision about what tool to use, how to implement it. Tons of YouTube videos, classes online, all that stuff is out there but making the decision about the right tool is a very intimate decision that has to be made based on the context. So I don't have like a specific answer that I can say, this is the one you should use. We've had great success using React and Storybook and things like this to kind of manage the day-to-day activity on the engineering side. We've had great success doing some smaller, more like web component type approaches. We've even done much less In terms of systems and focused more on like foundations and tokens and then that really is an enabling tool for independent autonomous product teams to be able to use the frameworks they feel are necessary for their work so it depends (laughs) i know you hate that answer but yeah so a lot of those tools
0: you just mentioned my theory would be that many of these orgs even if they haven't really thought about their workflow kind of in terms of design systems, they're already using some of those, maybe all of them are a large subset. Is it often the case that like when you're having this conversation with organizations that the, the tooling is there, maybe no new tools need to be introduced to kind of facilitate this change in process and flow? Or is it, have you found it almost as always the case that there is some additional piece that needs to be introduced?
1: Oftentimes, I would say a majority of the tooling is already in place. Now, we might be using it a little differently or something, and so there's some work to do there. But there is a suite of tools that exist now that are very design system focused that most orgs who don't have a system will not already have in place. Things like Supernova or Zero Height, you know, which are the way that a lot of these organizations are positioning themselves is that will be the hub, the center for the spokes to attach to. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just looking at zero height is one that we like, you know, and it has uh, some really nice integrations with a lot of the kinds of things that an engineering team would use or a, a UX or design team would use. So they're building integrations to bring these disparate sets of frameworks and things into one place. And their primary focus is about creating really good documentation and offering that in a nice, very searchable, easily findable way. So that's a really helpful thing. But we've had great success building those sites from scratch, too. It depends on the level of technical expertise across the teams. How easy does it need to be to modify the documentation? If you've got a team of folks who understand Markdown, well, we can do that very easily, you know, in a GitHub repository. If you don't have that and we need to have a more sort of a nicer interface for editing things, well, something like zero height could be a great choice. And then it's like pricing comes into play because those tools are not cheap to use. Um, And it's, it's licensing for individuals and how many people are contributing. It gets, you know, how all that goes. Yeah. But oftentimes I would say the majority of the stuff you need is probably already in place or something that can solve those problems is there.
0: I guess, yeah, before we wrap, is there anything else you wanted to plug or
1: promote? I just recorded a, it's about a five-hour online workshop through Frontend Masters, and it is very conceptual, you know, like everything that we've talked about today, because I think the problems are actually at this sort of human conceptual level. They're not at the implementation. Like people are so smart these days, it's actually not hard to build things that can be reused. The problem is in you know, how we get there. So that's what this workshop is focused on. It's about design systems in the enterprise. And it's really a series of these kind of mental models to help shift the way you think about systems work. So that's something that I think a lot of organizations have found really valuable. I've gotten some incredible feedback on that. I would also say that if your listeners are in the midst of designing or implementing a system and they're struggling, I am continuing my research in this space. So I would love to hear the challenges specifically they're facing or if they've solved some of these kinds of problems, how they've done that. That's incredibly valuable for me. So I'm always happy to have a conversation with folks and hear things they're learning. Nice. What's the easiest way for people to get in touch with you? Twitter DMs or LinkedIn messages or my email is just, I'll give it to you. It's just ben at heysparkbox.com.
0: Is there anything else finally that you're excited about kind of in the space on the horizon or in the future?
1: I mentioned this, I think at the beginning, like my whole set of values are driven around making an impact and the more that I do this work the more I see the potential it has to create a lot more health inside of an organization so the thing that is exciting to me is the systems that we're working on are doing that but they're also on the opposite side exposing the practices that are not healthy So if that's something you're interested in doing, it takes a lot of perseverance, but I do feel very optimistic about the impact these kinds of approaches are having inside organizations as a whole. So that's the thing I'm probably most excited about. I love to learn, I love to talk about this stuff. So this kind of conversation, I really thrive on this.
0: Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me, Ben. It's truly been a pleasure. Yeah, pleasure was mine.